conversation the other day and it was a teen involved in the conversation and it kind of turned towards heaven just briefly for about a second and it was kind of joked about with the dogs going to heaven and and um, one of the comments made was I hope I just we're all adults here but I hope I get to have sex before I go to heaven and um, the sense that you're going to be disappointed if you get to heaven and you didn't get to do some things first or something is not there that you really hope it's there, even if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe you thought that way, I don't know, some other concerns, I don't know. But you're looking forward to heaven, but what if somebody's not there or something's not there? And there's always this focus on end times and the kingdom on earth like it is in heaven. What does that mean? What's it going to look like? How's it going to be set up? In fact, if Jesus could answer five questions for you right now, I mean, I guarantee you, at least three of them are probably going to be related to heaven. Like, what's it look like? Is my family there? Is it on earth? Is it in space? <laughs> is it, what, what is it? I mean, typically our brains go straight there. So Jesus, ironically enough, is going to answer that question multiple times, but probably not the way that you expect to see him do it. So let's go back in here. We're building off the parable of the sower. He are, we did that last week. He's continuing the same thread because he says, again, the kingdom of heaven. We're in Matthew 13. We're going to pick up around verse 24. But he says, um, again, the kingdom of heaven. He's building on this, you know, continuing theme of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And we've talked about this before, but just since he's going to bring it up a bunch of times, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same thing. Some might debate that. I don't. They're the same thing. Matthew is using the term kingdom of heaven more often because Matthew is more focused on the Jewish people and they would not use the name of God commonly. So he is using the phrase kingdom of heaven, but they're synonymous. He means the same thing. Keep in mind, too, as we go into this, the context of what we're talking about. Jesus is sitting in a boat. He's teaching. All these people are on the shore, standing there listening to him, this crowd. Uh, He has just been rejected by the people for the final time that he's going to accept it. And now he has, in a sense, rejected that generation as far as offering the kingdom to them. He's speaking in parables now. We've talked about this last week. If you disagree, go back and listen. But he's using a bit of, I hate to use the word code, but that's kind of the idea. He's, he's teaching something to those who have ears to hear, disciples or people who will be disciples, while at the same time it is over the head in a lot of ways of those who are hearing it in the general crowd. That's why he used the phrase, even what they have will be taken away, that they're going to, in essence, become perhaps more confused by what he's putting out there. All of these parables that he's telling here, as we go through them, just just look at the language. They seem to be divisive, condemning. Uh, It sounds like a prophet pronouncing justice and judgment. You know what I mean? They're, They're not super... Happy sounding, unless you recognize that you fall into the justice side. The ones receiving justice are going to hear that he's talking about justice because they have ears to hear and they want justice. And those who are receiving judgment, 
probably don't understand what he's talking about anyway because they've turned their ears off to him in the first place. Um, he's done all these miracles. They've seen, them. they've seen all these miracles. They've seen all these things occur. They heard him preach plainly the Sermon on the Mount, you know. And so now he's moved into parables. So verse 24, he puts another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. I love the language there real quick. He put a parable before him. It's like he put an object in the table, middle of the table and said, now, kingdom of heaven's like that. You know what I mean? Your natural response is to observe it and try to determine, okay, what's he saying by what I'm seeing here? Same kind of thing. He obviously didn't put a physical object there, but he's putting something in front of them for them to consider. Instead of just saying one definite answer, the kingdom of heaven is tall, wide, you know, gold, whatever. He's saying, he puts it in front of them, imagery, and says, consider what's there. And verse 24, he goes on, and he says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. One other note, real quick. He's going to tell three here, and it's interesting. I made a mention before that parables can be any length, and some people argue that. But here's three in a row that he calls parables. The first one is a paragraph and a pretty good story. The second one is literally two sentences, and the third one is one sentence. So they can be any length, all right? So verse 24, a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the wheats also, weeds, excuse me, appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has gone and done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in the gathering the weeds you root up the whole wheat along with them. Let both grow together until they, the harvest. And at harvest time... I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, he's going to explain this in pretty good detail in a few minutes. So I'm going to let it sit a second, and we'll go over it when he explains it. Verse 31. He put another parable before them. Okay, them being the crowd. All right, so that one was before the crowd. Now he's putting another one in front of the crowd immediately. Without clarifying that one, he's putting another one right back out. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a grain of a mustard seed, some say, is about the size of a grain of salt, like a tiny, tiny, tiny thing that uh, a man took and sowed in this field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree or a shrub to us, but it can be up to 10 feet high, which is a huge garden plant. So that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. A mustard seed can live in almost any kind of soil. It can grow. It actually has the power the roots do to, to break through rocks. It's one you'll see this. We'll talk about it later. But when he talks about the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. It's the same idea that it can break through rocks. It can bust through to find um, soil in any way. And what he's getting at here is this mustard seed is like the word of the kingdom. That's the way that I see this. The mustard seed is like the word of the kingdom. And he has come and he's proclaimed this little mustard seed. And it, it will grow into a huge tree. 
Some see the huge tree as just the kingdom in general. I think that's probably true in part. But I think he's more focused on as the tree. I think he's more focused here on the kingdom among the Jewish people. And I think he's talking about the, the, the overall big picture. He's talking about now it's going to take time. Trees take time to grow. It's going to be a long coming time frame. It's not all of a sudden now we have the tree. Now he's going to plant the tiniest little seed among the Jewish people. But it's going to grow into this big tree over a long period of time. And then he mentions these birds that come and make nests in it. Um, there's debate over that too, but I think the birds are indicating that the tree is bigger than just the Jewish people. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to draw in the nations, honestly, like like bugs to, to a light in the dark. That's exactly what it was supposed to do. They were supposed to draw in the nations. In the same way, I think this tree that will grow, he's planted this little seed and this tree will grow, a Jewish tree initially, will grow and it will draw in all of these birds to come nest in it and it will include them. And that's not new. I'm going to tell you why I see it that way. All right, I'll give you some verses. You don't have to turn to them. Ezekiel 17, 23. Ezekiel uses the same language. By the way, Ezekiel's a prophet, right? These guys I'm referring to here are prophets. In the end of this section we're going through, Jesus will say a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. So even though he's using parables, what he's speaking here is prophetic. So you've got to see some prophecy in what he's saying too. You know what I'm getting at? So Ezekiel 17 verse 23, he says, On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it. A tree he's talking about. That it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. Talking about Israel. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest. Talking about bringing in um, all nations. Ezekiel 31, he talks about, Ezekiel talks about Assyria using the same language. He talks about Assyria in verse 5. He says, it towered high above all the other trees of the field. Its bows were great and large, its branches long from abundant water in its shoots. And all the birds of, hev- of the heavens or the air, made their nest in its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young, and under the shadow uh, lived all great nations. Same idea, that it would become a great tree, and all of these animals, birds, whatever, were representative of nations being sheltered under the nation of Assyria. Then Daniel talks about Babylon the same way, when he interprets a dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 4. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 20, he says, The tree you saw, which grew and became great and strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the air lived. It's you, O king, in Babylon, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Same imagery, Three, three times there of three different nations as a great tree that all of the nations would come under. And he uses the bird language. So in a lot of ways, I think that's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying even though this is as small as a grain of salt, it's going to grow to become the greatest of all trees, national trees, ultimately. And all the nations will take shelter in that, under that tree. That's what I think he's coming at. But main point of what he's beginning to get at is that it's distant. It's unstoppable. It's all-powerful, but it's distant. It's starting really small now. 
It's, it's not going to be, I'm conquering the Romans, and I'm setting up the kingdom, and Israel will rule as a nation, and through a miracle or rebellion, however he wants to do it. He's not going to do it that way. So I'm going to do it like a grain is the way it's going to start now. Um, one rabbi, 12 disciples, in light of the whole kingdom of Israel, much less the whole world. That's tiny, tiny, tiny. You know what I'm saying? The tiniest of tiny. Uh, but don't we all understand how gigantic it is now? You know what I mean? And we, as Gentiles, have been, Paul goes to great detail, we've talked about it, grafted into this kingdom. We, I believe, are like the birds that are finding shelter in that tree. Verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Some say this is a negative thing because leaven is typically used in relation to sin in the Bible. But that context, I don't think that's his point. What does leaven do? Yeast. Makes it rise. Yeah, makes it rise. And that's what he's talking about, the tree rising. He's talking about something rising. And I think what he's getting at here is, again, the leaven is the kingdom. It's sown into this flower, which I, again, believe is that he's talking about Israel in a sense, this kingdom. He's sown this little bit of leaven in this large amount of flour here. And this little bit of leaven in this large amount of flour is going to cause all of it to rise ultimately. And it's going to grow. I think he's alluding to a future day. Paul said in Romans 11, when all Israel will be saved. But in both cases, the language is suggesting something small, something secret, an invasion. If you want to look at it that way. Yeast is something small and simple, but it invades the whole thing. You know what I mean? He's talking about something small. It's growing. It, it begins... And always includes Israel, whether you see it that way or not, as the tree and the flower, whether you see it that way or not. It always includes Israel. That's where he started. But it grows to include all nations. And it's growing slowly. The point of all three of these, really, is that he said so far, is that it's going to now be a slow, it's going to be a slow process. But it's going to be epic. It's going to be huge. If you put the wheat in the weeds that we just went over before it, and you put, he's going to talk about a net where you scoop in all these fish, we'll get to it. If you realize those are boxed in, what he's saying is, this kingdom is going to grow for generations. It's going to become powerful over time as it grows. It is going to grow bigger and bigger and bigger, but, but slowly over years and years, and at the same time, false religions, false messiahs, false teachers are going to grow up with it. But one day, he'll separate that and his kingdom will be established on earth. That's the general theme of all that he's saying. Look at verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. We talked about this last week, so I won't spend time here. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what is hidden from the foundation of the world. If somebody asked you what is heaven like, how would you answer I'm not setting you up. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> huh? Unimaginable. I can't describe it. When I grew up, I mean, if you asked me to describe three characteristics of heaven, probably the three for me is no pain, no sorrow, and gold. You know what I mean? <laughs> My house on the river. You know what I mean? We had a guy in prison 
they were saying that the other day, how he just, when he gets to heaven, he wants to be left alone for a few years to build his cabin on the lake, you know. And he's cutting up, but, I mean, he's a believer. He was cutting up, but still, that's kind of the way I think most of us would see it if you're asked to describe heaven. There's no pain, there's no fear, the lion and the lamb together, the... You know, kid puts his, yeah, the baby playing with the cobra, the new body, you know, that doesn't suffer, doesn't hurt. None of those things are wrong. They're all true. Okay, they're all true. Everything we've said here is true. But when Jesus is asked to describe heaven, that's not the way he's describing it. What he's saying here in parables is about separating people. It's about judgment in a lot of ways. It's not happy, joyous language that he's using here. And and what he is saying about the growth of the kingdom is vague at best. What he's getting at, ultimately, here, here's what Jesus would say about the kingdom of heaven. Two things. People and God. That's all he's using for language here, basically, is there's people and God. He's not talking about feelings, and he's not talking about locations. He's just talking about two things. People and their relationship to him and who he is. Now, he will talk about his kingdom on earth, but what he's getting at is... His relationship to people and their relationship to him, and that's pretty much it. Is he talking about the future, or is he talking about now? Yes, exactly. Yes, both. Because it is immediate what he's talking about, but he's also saying it, it is going to grow and come. So in our day, it is all three. It is past, present, and future. All right? So the language that he's using here is also kind of making clear that the offer's off the table for that generation because now he's talking about a distant thing all of a sudden. Yet it's also already begun. So he's explaining to his disciples now, he's going to turn to them and he's going to say, I know I'm speaking as though it's distant, but that doesn't mean you have nothing to do. In fact, yes, you're part of it, but don't wait for it. Pursue it. Now, that sounds funny. It's hard to really think about for us because we think, well, if I have it, what am I pursuing it for? But he's saying you are part of it. You're involved in it. You know, you belong to it. But there's more to it. So pursue it. You know what I'm getting at? That, that's kind of where he's going to go with this. So look at verse 36. He says, then he left the crowds and he went into the house. So he'd been in the house. He went out to address the crowds in this boat in, you know, down at the lake or whatever, now he's come back into the house, and his disciples come with him. So now, likely, it's just him and his disciples. And they said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. So they don't ask about the, the two shorter ones. They just go straight to that big, longer one. Hey, back up to that one with all the details. And he answered. So he answers them. Made no attempt to explain it to the crowds. But here... Personally, he's quick to answer and explain it to him. So he identifies the characters just like we did with the, the seed and the sower last week. He's doing the same thing here. He's identifying the characters. He says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Who's that? Him. Right. Verse 38. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons. That's a huge word. Sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. This is not an opinion. This is not those who choose God and those who choose the devil. These belong to, by genealogy, by bloodline, they belong to either him or to the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. That's a pretty trippy statement. The reapers are angels. Um, verse 40. 
Here's the event. So now you know the characters. Now he's going to explain where these characters plugged into the story that he was saying. He says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. See, all of a sudden his language now is talking about at the end of the age, not the end of the world, at the end of a time period. What time period? He's not defining that for them. He's saying this age ahead. At the end of that. See, they're thinking, he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember, hadn't he been preaching that? Kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, all of a sudden, it's at the end of the age. So there's something now, but there's something ahead too. Okay? And he says, verse 41, the Son of Man will send his angels and they'll gather out of his kingdom. I love that. Out of his kingdom. At the point that he's talking about the end of the age, it is his kingdom. All causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Well, this is obviously talking about on earth because there's no sin in heaven. If you see heaven as the place where God dwells above, what he's saying is this is he's he's on earth, his kingdom, and he is uh, removing all sin and lawbreakers from it. Verse 42, and he'll throw them into the fiery furnace. That word furnace is really just what it is. It's like a kiln or a forge. It's something that you get so hot that it can cook metals in that place which means it is a place in some way shape or form in that place there will be will be weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, ongoing it's a location with ongoing torment sorrow rage if you don't like this I'm sorry because Jesus is about to talk about it for a long time you know, I'm, I'm not a hellfire preacher by any means, but he was. So there's tons of it in here. All right. This phrase, he's going to use a whole lot. Weeping, you know what weeping means. Gnashing of teeth is like anger. Like you're gritting your teeth at somebody. Absolute anger. So you're talking about people that aren't regretful, sorrowful. Oh, if only I had believed. No, they're like, you know, cussing at him, spitting at him, hating him for what he's making them endure now. After all, they made him endure on earth. Like that kind of idea. All right. And it says, then the righteous shall shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So Jesus does this repeatedly. You don't have to turn to it now. We'll get there. But in chapter 25, when he talks about separating the sheep from the goats, in the end of that phrase, he talks about the righteous will go into eternal life with him and the wicked will go into eternal punishment. So here is the same thing without using the word eternal, but it's the same thing. He's comparing two different things. The one goes here where there's weeping of gnashing of teeth. The one goes here where they shine like the sun. If you think that hell doesn't exist or hell just evaporates, then so does the shining like the sun and so does your heaven. You can't single one out and say, well, yeah, we'll live in eternity in paradise and shining like the sun, but they'll just disappear. That's not what this says. You know, and he doesn't give you room for that. But here he's talking about these kingdoms and he ends it with, he who has ears, let him hear. Once again, if you understand what I'm saying, can you hear me? Am I making sense? Then, then you have ears to hear what I'm saying. One other thing too, before we get too deep into this parable, look at this, is pretty awesome. Look at verse 41. The son of man is who? Jesus, right? And who do the angels belong to in that verse? Jesus. 
the Son of Man will send his angels. And they will gather out of whose kingdom? His kingdom. But then look at verse 43. In the kingdom of their father. Literally linking the two of them together. It's his kingdom. They're his angels. And yet, it's also the father's kingdom belongs to him. You know, John fourteen seven. If you've seen me, what? Seen the father. You know what I mean? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's a pretty good little thing there. People say Jesus never called himself God. Well, in verse 41, he pretty much is, by all standards. <laughs> the angels belong to him. It's his kingdom. And if he is able to cast out all sin, you know, I don't know what else you're going to call him. But, anyway, the parable here in its most simple form is about two kingdoms who live in the same space right now. Two kingdoms that live in the same space right now. Weeds here are most likely this kind of wheat or weed called a darnel. It looks like wheat. One uh, commentary says, bearded darnel is perhaps the most likely suggestion. This wheat looks rather like, or excuse me, this weed looks rather like wheat when it's young, but it matures to have a black seed and plays host to a fungus that can be quite toxic to humans. The idea here is it's going to be hard to see the difference. And they're going to get worse as time passes. It's going to get more and more common. Many false, Jesus will tell you many false messiahs will arise. You know, he'll get to this kind of language. In the end, many will say, didn't I do miracles in your name? You know, claiming by your power that I'm doing these miracles. But he's talking about one day sin being removed here. Some say he's talking about the cross, but that's not the case. Because... Angels don't play a role in the cross. He's saying the sin is going to be removed when these angels gather up like reapers, all those that are sinful. That's not the cross. That's something else. This issue, too, is related to sons. So you must already belong to him. So he's not talking about salvation here at all. He's talking about a time period in the future when the kingdoms are separated. The true kingdom of the sons of Christ and the other kingdom of the sons of the evil one. He's not talking about evangelism or salvation or unity or any of that. He's talking about the exact opposite. He's talking about something hidden. He's talking about discovering it. He's talking about separation. He's talking about judgment. It's a whole different idea of what's coming out of his mouth. And he's also talking about a physical kingdom on earth. So regardless of the many possible details or questions here, the simple point is that sin is going to be removed. The enemy and his people, his sons, and the spirits involved, they may be living among you now, but they will be separated. His kingdom will be established. And for those that are sons, he says they'll shine like the sun, S-U-N. That's the Old Testament language, too. He's pointing back to Scripture. He's not just saying some happy little imagery. I'll give you the verses. You don't have to turn. Judges 5.31 says, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. Daniel 12.2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise, those who belong, those who are righteous, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars or the sun forever and ever. 
Jesus, in fact, when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration and his body is transfigured in front of the disciples, and it even says his face like shone like the sun. So that's the imagery that he's painting. He's pulling off this Old Testament prophecy, and he's basically saying that that's going to happen. That hasn't changed. That's still going to happen. But now it's distant. Look at verse 44. Still only to his disciples here. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden. Like the leaven in verse 33. In this case, it's treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Verse 44. I'm going to put these two together because it's the same point. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. So this merchant is looking for them who on finding one pearl of great value, so this is a pearl hunter, and he finds the pearl of all pearls. He went and sold all that he had, every pearl, every other option, sold everything that he had and came back and bought it. The point of both of these is simple, is the kingdom is worth more than we have and it will, it will not disappoint. Once you find it, once you know it, even if it costs everything you have, and it will, it will not disappoint because it's still worth so much more. And though salvation here is something that's hidden from the crowd because the path is narrow, if you find it, once you find it, you'll give up your life for it. Give up everything for it once you actually find it. Y'all probably know Mark eight thirty five. Whoever saves his life, what? Will lose it. And whoever loses it for my sake, what? Will save it. That's right. Or find it. Or what does it profit a man to what? Gain the whole world and lose his soul. Yep, gain the whole world and lose his soul. Same idea. It's worth everything. Some say, again, the man in the field is a picture of Israel here because the treasure is found there. The treasure was there. It's found in this field. And some say the man with the pearl is a picture of a Gentile because he's seeking the truth. He's seeking the kingdom. He's looking for it everywhere. And... Pearls come from oysters, and oysters are unclean animals, so it's an odd analogy to stick with a Jewish person. That's what they say. But the bottom line here is if the pearl cost everything he had, if it cost everything he had, then it has to have more value than everything he had, or he's just an idiot. Know what I'm saying? I mean, if it cost everything he had, then it has to be of greater value than everything he has. So the point is, the value of the Object far exceeds whatever the cost is to obtain it. Get that? The value of the object far exceeds whatever cost it was to obtain it. If the gospel, if the kingdom is that jewel, then what Jesus is saying is that far exceeds whatever it costs for you to get it. Notice too, he's not talking about because it's made of gold, because you'll have this, because you'll have that, because you won't hurt, because you're not saying that. He's just simply saying how much it's going to cost you. It's pretty funny that he flips it back on you. Instead of saying it's, it's worth it because of all these things, he just says it's going to cost you everything, but it's worth it. Either you see that or you don't see that. You know what I mean? He just saying either you see it or you don't see it. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net now he's bookending it here. That was thrown into the sea and gathered for every kind. I'm sorry, gathered fish of every kind. 
Verse 48, when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. Again, he's talking about this age all of a sudden, and he's saying at the end. So he's speaking distantly. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. Same language you used before. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's twice now in just a few words. You think he's making a point? You know what I mean? It's not just random language here. He bookends with the same language with the weights in the wheat parable. He's now sticking this one on, this dragnet. It's got weights all around it, and they throw it out, and they just let it drop. And it sinks slowly, and it just kind of trap every single thing on its way to the bottom. And then it gets to the bottom, and all these weights sit on the bottom. And then these men will begin to pull it up, and as they're pulling from the center up, the weights draw in. And bunch up against each other and they pull every single thing. If it was a tire in there, which obviously there wouldn't have been. <laughs> but if there was whatever it gets, it gets. And they pull that all up. And then they have to hope on this way down it got whatever. But it, it gets everything. All right? Brings everything down. So that's what he's talking about. And there again is a suggestion of time. They're going to throw the net and let it drift to the bottom. And scoop everything up. All the way down to the bottom. But when it gets to the bottom and it's time, it's the men are pulling it out. Everything in it. Pulling it out. And he says, yeah, verse 51. Look, he says, just like you said it. He says, have you, disciples, understood all these things? Whereas he didn't even bother to ask crowds that. But he asked the disciples, have you understood all these things? And what does the disciples say? Yes. Because, as you mentioned... He's used very commonplace things, very commonplace analogies in order for the, to make sense, and they get it. But I think it's cool that he's still asking them. He doesn't, even, he doesn't even have to explain the other parables because they have ears to hear, they understand. But even still, he still asks. Like he, because there are those in the crowd who will. I'm saying he's not simplifying anything for the crowd. He's speaking to the crowd. But if you have ears to hear within the crowd, then follow him. If you don't, then I'm sorry you don't understand. Kind of in that, that's Dave, I'm adding to the word, but that's kind of where he's going. Uh, I will say back on the angels thing, it is bizarre. I won't go into all that, but that is pretty crazy. We, we get through, he'll talk some more about it, but it is neat that the angels play a role. Sometimes we forget that, but the angels play a role in God's kingdom. They're not just floating around to make sure you don't trip over a rock. You know what I mean? They play a role. Um, look, at, look, look, at verse, look at verse 52. Um, and, and I'll tell you something. Why do you think he wants them to understand? If they're already part of the kingdom, they're already part of it. And they're not the ones that are going to be judged, in a sense. They're not going to be the sons of the lost one. Why does he want them to understand this? I think you're exactly right. So we can share it with others. And sure enough, look at verse 52. And he said to them, Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. So after they said, yes, we understand. Now he's saying, okay, let me, let me tell you what's up. It's like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Notice it doesn't say disciple or believer in his analogy here. It says scribe of all of the words to choose. What is a scribe? A teacher of what? The law, the word of God. 
He's saying everybody who teaches the word of the law, a master of the word, let's use scripture for us instead of the word of the law because we have scripture. So he's saying a master of the scriptures, a master of the word, you've discovered in it treasure. You're in charge of that. You've been in, scribes were entrusted to teach. So he's saying your disciples, he's using this analogy of a scribe to them. He's saying you have been entrusted with something to teach. It's treasure. It's something that you have been entrusted with, and you need to bring out all of it. So what Jesus is telling his disciples is that this kingdom that he's talking about is going to have Old Testament character and New Testament character. Now, there's no New Testament yet. They're living it. Okay? But what he's talking about is his teaching. All right? Who he is. And he's not teaching something contrary to anything in the Old Testament. He's teaching things that fulfill much of what the Old Testament says. And, furthermore, if he doesn't establish the kingdom on earth right now, because the Old Testament said it would happen, what he's saying is, I'm showing something new. An age. But, the old will still come to truth. What's said in the old will still happen. It's still going to occur. That the kingdom will include an old identity, in a sense, and a new identity, both. That some say Israel and the church, but, you know, don't get too caught up on Israel because there's a lot of time before Israel showed up. All of history up until Jacob now, there's a lot of folk that lived before Jacob did. So he's talking about all peoples here. Over this course of time, it's awesome what he's saying. You've been entrusted with all of the word, and his word is the word. Um, one commentary says this, A teacher of the scriptures, the Old Testament, instructed in the kingdom of heaven, makes the connections between the written law, the written word, and the priorities of this kingdom of heaven that Jesus is speaking of. He sees the Messiah, the work of the teach, the work and the teaching of the Messiah, and the ultimate goal of this messianic era expressed in Scripture in the Old Testament. So when I look at what Jesus is doing, I can see, yeah, that was taught, that was foretold, that was said it was going to happen, that was anticipated. That's all over the Word. When I look and I see it, that's what he's getting at. These are the new things. Being able to look at Jesus and see that He is bringing to fruition all these things that were foretold. He said, yet he doesn't disregard the law and the prophets, but continues to faithfully expound them. Those are the old things, which that's what we're guilty of. If you know me, you've heard me talk about this a bunch of times. I swear I'm not throwing any stones here, okay, but this is just me. I have a conviction. I don't give away New Testaments. In fact, there's cases of them sitting in a shelf around here because I, won't give them, I don't give them away. You can give them away in your life group if you want, but I don't do that. I will give you a Bible or a study Bible, especially if I can make it work. I want you to have a study Bible. Because to me, I get why. I get why. But to me, I feel like we're robbing people of two-thirds of the Word of God. It's either all His Word or it's not. Yeah. That is awesome. Amen to that. <laughs> Amen to that. One of my favorite verses, Psalm 119, 160. That's a mouthful, but that's where it is. Psalm 119, 160. It says, the sum of your word is truth, and all your righteous words endure forever. The sum of it is truth. All from Genesis to Revelation, all of it is truth. Present, active truth. 
Everything in there is. All of it. And that's what Jesus is saying, that I'm giving you new stuff, but it's all truth. It's nothing contradictory. It's nothing unknown. In fact, it's things that were anticipated. Our problem is we say, oh, the New Testament fulfilled the old, so toss the old as a history book and let's camp in the new now. That's not true. In fact, Jesus has said there are things yet to be fulfilled. He's putting off things to the end of the age. Let's finish this last piece, verse 53, because it ties in. And when he had finished these parables, he went away from there. So he journeys off from Capernaum or wherever he is to verse 54. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So he goes straight home and he begins to teach in the synagogue. All right, not on the street. He goes into their synagogue and he starts to teach. So they were astonished at him. This is pretty wild language. What it's really saying is, it's, it's an extreme word here. It's, it's like a, an angry word. It's almost like they, they were panicked. They worked up, you know, crazy. They were astonished and they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? This is not like a happy question. This is like, is this the devil kind of question? Is not this the carpenter's, this the carpenter's kid, man? Is not his mother called Mary, not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and are not his sisters with us? So there's his whole family tree right there. When did this man get all these things? Where, where did this man get all these things? Some argue that he, this no joke, some argue that he went to India and learned mystical arts and came back with them. Some argue that he went to Egypt. I'm telling you, you can watch Discovery Channel, History Channel, they talk about it today, that he went to Egypt and learned magic arts and came back. That's kind of what they're asking. Where did he pick this up? Uh, quick, quick, just because it's here. Quick shot at the Catholic argument of Mary being a perpetual virgin. Clearly not, because there's her family tree by name. Mary, jo- James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and Jesus. That's it, you know, and sisters. Verse 57, and they took offense. That word offense is where we get the word scandalize, or scandal. What's a scandal? Is a scandal ever a good thing? No. no. It's usually a scandal. It involves people, multiple people, and straight sin in some way, shape, or form. And what they're getting at here is they feel like they, they, they're taking offense at him like it's a scandal. What they're saying is, you, you're causing us, you're trying to bring us into your cult. That's really what they're saying, Dave language. But you're trying to bring us into your cult. But Jesus said to them, a prophet, a prophet is one who speaks the word of God. Okay, so not just him. I love he didn't just say I'm not welcome. All prophets, Old Testament, New Testament. You know, I wouldn't say we have prophets today. We can argue about that later. But those who proclaim the word of God, just the same, not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. I always missed that in the past, but it doesn't just say in his hometown, but in his own household. And he didn't do mighty works there because of their unbelief. It doesn't say he didn't do any mighty works there. He didn't do many mighty works there. That wasn't, wasn't, they didn't do anything. And another thing I used to think is, because I've heard this preach, that, oh, he couldn't do anything at home because they didn't believe. Is that really true? He didn't do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So it sounds like, if you're not thinking clearly, that's what he's saying, but your belief does not give Christ the ability to do anything. He don't need you to believe for him to do a flipping thing. You know what I mean? What he's saying here is that their, their lack of faith didn't make it impossible for him to do anything. It, it, it doesn't say that they had little faith. 
or even that they had no faith. This is not doubt. It says they had something. They had unbelief. They had decided. We've weighed it all out. We've seen it all. Jesus, you ain't it. We've decided the matter like the rest of the nation. You are of the devil. You are, I'm adding that in. But that's the idea that they had decided that here's the case. Big difference between that guy and the guy in Mark 9, 23. You don't have to go to it. When he asked Jesus for help and he says, if you can, can you help? And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And what does he say? I believe. Help my unbelief. He didn't just say help my unbelief. He didn't say, I believe. Help my unbelief. These people are in a whole nother category. They said, nope, not happening. You're not him. Get out. His rejection had been ongoing now for like two whole chapters. And now has come to his own hometown, his own, quote, friends, his own family. Dad's probably dead, but mom and brothers. Um, ultimately, as, as you noted, ultimately they come to faith. But at this point, I think Mary knew, but I think Mary's just struggling. But the brothers sure didn't. But they get there. But right now, man, it's crazy. And it's not a surprise, really, like you noted. It's not a surprise after they, Jesus had just been like pursued by them. Why did they come to try to get him? Remember why did his mother and his brothers come to try to get him? They thought he was crazy. Word says so. They thought he was crazy. Now he's come back home and he's making all the neighbors think he's crazy. You know what I mean? And, and them as well. But he says it's typical of prophets, even today. Why are friends and family the most skeptical? They know you the best. That's why I says, are you, ain't you the carpenter's son? You didn't go to seminary. Where'd you learn to do that? And the main reason is, what he says a prophet is never welcome. What's the main message of a prophet? Really, the only message. Jesus had said it. John said it constantly. Repent. Repent, repent, repent. How many of you love to hear the word repent? How'd you like for your son to come tell you, Dad, repent? You know what I mean? Or that crazy neighbor come tell you, repent. He's teaching a lot of things, but that's why a prophet's not welcome. They always bring what should be good news, but it never is because it hurts. So it's always perceived as bad news. Repent. So what do you take out of this? I'm going to let y'all think on it, but I started wrestling through it and I was like, granted, I always go into it and I say, well, first of all, how do I see God in this? What does he look like to me now? Having read through this, how do I see his kingdom? What does it look like? But I've really been thinking about it, and you guys think about it too. What do you think your part is in this kingdom? If you're a disciple, and he's giving you parables, and you're processing them, because a parable is supposed to be processed. It wasn't just supposed to go math, 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 got it, next, math, math. It's supposed to be processed. When you're processing it, think about it. Ask him, like, what? why do you want me to understand this parable? What is my role as a disciple in understanding all this you're talking about with this distant and this separation and this kingdom at the end of the era, the age. You know what I'm saying? Lord, I love you so much, God. You're so awesome. So, so awesome. I find myself repeating that phrase a lot when I finish in your word each week. I feel like I say the same thing when I take a knee, but that's just because that's the first thing that comes in my brain. Every time we spend time in your word, you're just awesome. And, um, uh, 
The coolest part of it all, Lord, is that it, it, it's your word. It's not mine. It's not anybody else's. I, the wisdom in this room uh, among men and women here to be able to unpack what you've said. But, God, it's what you said. And, Lord, I, I do pray you give us wisdom as your disciples to understand what you say into us. And God, I also pray if anybody, anybody ever come, anybody's ever here, not just in this room, but in this building, comes into this church, Lord, and they don't know you, I pray, Lord, that you would open their ears. Let them hear who you are. Let them hear your spirit speak to them. Let your word be understood. And God, convict them that they would repent and give their life to you. And Jesus, I thank you that when that happens, we become sons, we become daughters, we become family. And though the enemy has sons and daughters, Lord, we belong to you and we can trust that one day, Lord, your kingdom will be here. It will be set up and you will reign just as sure as you were here the first time. You will be here again. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.